Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for September 7th, 2022. Quite a few books to talk about. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. Uh, we have a new Aliens number one. Uh, I have no idea why Marvel has started Alien over with number one because it's the same writer. It is a new artist, but it seems kind of strange because... Uh, this definitely ties into the previous couple of story arcs that we had from Alien. So, again, I'm just not sure. Uh, and the reason I know that is because on the recap on the inside cover, it specifically mentions the events we saw in those couple of arcs. So uh, other than, hey, they just wanted to put out a crap ton of covers because this new number one does have a lot of covers. I'm I'm not really sure. Maybe they didn't get enough traction on the first a volume of Alien being over at Marvel, so they they're trying it again. Um, it's good. Uh, what what else can I say? It's from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson, who's a huge fan of the Alien franchise. Uh, as I mentioned, new artist is no longer Salvador Larocca. We have Julius Ota. Uh, Yen Nitro does the colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, this story, without getting too spoilery, I think it was in the solicits. Uh, it's all about a colony of synthetics and uh, the the corporation, the United States, uh, going to that uh, colony of synthetics and, and asking them for help. And obviously, there's the whole friction and, and bad blood between synthetics and regular humans. So it doesn't exactly go well. Uh, it's action packed. It's fast paced. The art by Ota is is gorgeous. Wonderful colors by Nitro really sets up uh, a cool idea going forward of these synthetics against against aliens. Uh, aliens are obviously, xenomorphs are obviously the sort of top of the food chain when it comes to uh, a species, a predator in, in the world of, uh, of alien. So synthetics are much better suited to fight against them than humans, but they're still they're still not at the level of the xenomorph. So what's going to happen? What are the motivations for these synthetics? Why would they help the humans? Like all that is explored. And I've talked a lot in the past about how great it is that Philip Kennedy Johnson is so additive with little details, planting seeds, uh, planting new, coming up with new ideas for the, the alien franchise and uh, his world building. Talk, talk about it all the time. What a great world builder he is. And with an established world where the broad strokes are already there, it lets him get down into those uh, little details, into that minutia, and really enrich the world with some of these ideas. So uh, I'm a big fan. Um, I never have been a big fan of Alien comics in the past when they were at Dark Horse. Just kind of thought they were okay. Um, what Kennedy Johnson is doing is so much better than okay far and away so i do recommend this for whatever reason like i said it is a new number one but that does provide a good jumping on point so if you haven't been reading alien you can jump on here like i said there is a synopsis inside the front cover you can get caught up on what's happened so far and uh you know be be a part of it moving forward i guess so check it out if you are so inclined if you're a fan of the movies you're gonna love what these guys have been doing so uh, all right, up next, another Marvel book, Punisher, King of Killers, book one, chapter six, written by Jason Aaron. We have uh, art by Jesus Saez and Paul Ezeceta, Dave Stewart on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Uh, you know, it, we really are lucky right now for some of these classic characters. We're getting some of the best stories for these classic characters that we've ever had. That is clearly the case with Punisher, with what? Jason Aaron is doing. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, the Jesus Saez art is gorgeous. The Paul, as I said, the art, which uh, Paul does the art when it's a flashback because we have been seeing the origin of Frank Castle in this series in a way that we never have before. Uh, you know, everybody knows about how the mob killed his family and he's out for revenge and that's why he kills criminals and what have you. But when I talk about the origin of Frank Castle, you know, we're going much further back than that. We're going to his formative years when uh, he learned when he first killed somebody, when he when he kind of learned that there was something different about him. You know, the, this idea of him being uh, the head of the, the cult of assassins known as the hand and 
you know, they call him the, the, you know, the beast. And, you know, what is it about him that makes him so good at killing? Ares is a part of the story in terms of he sees Castle as this beloved son because Castle's always at war. So there's a lot here. It's very rich, you know, in terms of the story that's going on in the present day. That's interesting with how the hand have. um, How have they convinced Frank to go along with what they're doing? You know, that part is interesting. The fact that they're more evil and Frank's questioning their morality and if he really made the right choice, but in a way he feels trapped because of how they got him to agree to be their leader. That stuff's all interesting and seems to be sort of breaking Castle down to build him back up, which uh, is always, you know, a tried and true and maybe even a little tropey uh, way of examining a character. But the reason it's done is because it works so well. And then you add in this, you know, origin tale, this very rich, detailed, emotional origin tale of, of Frank as a kid and first going off to war. And you have something really special. So uh, this is much more of a an emotional and intense look at the Punisher as opposed to just, hey, here's a story about a guy that goes around and kills criminals. That's less interesting to me, which is probably why I fell off the Punisher in the mid nineties. Cause it was just, it felt uninteresting, right? It's just the same old thing, him going up against criminals, finding out a way to outsmart them and ultimately take them out. Um, it's fun for a while, little wish fulfillment maybe. Um, but it, it doesn't stay compelling. At least it didn't for me. So anyway, I do recommend Punisher. Fantastic. Especially that Saya's art. Just gorgeous. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Time Before Time from Image. This is from writers Rory McConville and Declan Shalvey. Eric Z- Zawadski is the artist. Chris O'Halloran on colors. Hassan Atzman Elhow on letters. Uh, this is another one of those Image series that started with, you know, a, a smaller idea and has grown into something so much more. This idea of time travel, crime noir mixed together, interesting idea. I think Conville and Shalvey made a great decision early on saying, hey, you, yeah, you can go back through time, but you can't change things. Uh, like you're just not able, no matter what choice you make, you know, circumstances, situation will swing back around. So the same things, the same outcomes end up happening. So I find that to be interesting and a great way to sort of get around the the plot holes that can uh, crop up when you do time travel stories. So what that's allowed these guys to do is just create a very crime noirish type story. And we've talked before, you just think about the different time periods as settings, no different than, you know, hey, th- this crime noir part of the story is taking place in New York City and this one's taking place in New Jersey and this is taking place in Vegas or or whatever, San Francisco, whatever you want to say. Um, but it, it's, at, it's added in this sci-fi element that makes it interesting as sort of a, a background uh, part of the story. But as the story's gone on, the time travel piece has become a little more integral in terms of the way people are hiding out, uh, this robot Frank that has showed up that has um, befriended uh, Nadia and Tatsuo uh, the, this situation that Tatsuo specifically finds himself in, which was caused by his extensive time travel. So there's all these layers and that's what's so great about this series. It started off, you know, it was always, I won't say complicated, but it was always uh, you kind of had to pay attention especially with, you know, the different uh, time periods and whatnot. But as the stories got on, again, it hasn't become more complicated, but it's become more layered um, with different people after Nadia and Tatsuo and everything makes sense. Everything um, like you can understand the reasons that people make the choices they make. And it just feels very grounded, which is a strange thing to say about a time travel story. But again, the fact that it's not super fantastical, the fact that it's crime noir at its core makes this eminently readable and really compelling. And it, it's interesting because the scope of the story has gotten bigger at times. And then at other times, it feels more intimate, which is a really tough balancing act to do. But these guys have have nailed it. As far as the art goes, um, so Joe Palmer did uh, has done the majority of the art on this series, but 
Uh, I felt like Eric Zawetska's art was pretty solid. His style is similar enough to Joe Palmer's that it's not jarring. Uh, and his storytelling is really, really great. If I had to nitpick anything, his backgrounds are really light. There's a lot of panels where there's no backgrounds at all. Um, but the color work in those panels kind of helps to sell it, uh, to give more impact to the, the facial expressions in those panels. So Chris O'Halloran definitely is uh, is a veteran colorist and, and he knows what he's doing. He's making the, the best of Eric Zawadzka's line work. But uh, great storytelling by Eric. Uh, really, really great. And when he does put detail, he doesn't skimp on it. It's just that he doesn't always put detail in. So, so usually it's more of a close up on, on somebody's face, talking head kind of shot where we won't get uh, background. So um, I'm enjoying this series. It's one I, I really feel like I need to go back. And I mean, we're on issue 16. I feel like I need to go back and reread the first couple of maybe three arcs again. Um just because I think I'll get even more out of them now that I've uh, have a better understanding of these characters and and where the story is going. You know, I might see seeds that these guys planted early on that paid off later that I didn't realize were hinted at. So uh, again, a series I definitely recommend. Speaking of series, I recommend highest possible recommendation for Starhenge, book one, the dragon and the boar. Um, this has been a fantastic series, uh, critically acclaimed, but I think the sales aren't quite where they should be from my understanding. Um, I think the first issue did really well, but it's kind of fallen off. Uh, and I'm, I'm getting that information from Liam Sharp himself. This is created by Liam. He writes it, he draws it, he letters it, um, colors it. There's some additional art and the logo was, uh, the logo was uh, created by him and his wife, Christina. Uh, and then there's been some art in previous issues by his daughter, Matilda. So definitely a family affair. And it is this big, sprawling time travel space epic grounded in uh, Britain's history, both fictional history with, you know, Merlin and Arthur and that sort of thing. And also real history like Stonehenge um, and, uh, and different factions and um, kind of the fight between uh, Britain and Ireland and, and that sort of thing. So um I cannot recommend this enough. What's great about it is with the scope of the story that Liam is telling and going back and mining Britain's history and adding in, you know, certain, uh, taking certain creative liberties to, to add things in, to make it more interesting and fit this sort of time travel alien space epic. Um, there could be a, a tendency or, um, it, the story could be could come across as feeling pretentious, but that doesn't happen because in in modern day this whole story is being narrated by this woman, teenage woman, late teens, early twenties, uh, and the irreverent style, uh, the irreverent um, way she's telling the story in terms of her vocabulary, language choice, syntax, just the way she talks, um, because apparently she's got a connection to this. A real big space epic and and the, uh, the Britons of the past and these other beings from far in the future that have traveled back to prevent this war that's going to destroy all, all of reality. The way she talks about it brings a levity to it, right? Like th this is life and death stuff. You know, existence itself could be wiped out. I mean, she might not necessarily be aware of that and she's unrepentantly who she is. And just the way that she talks about everything with sort of a uh, almost uh, an uncomprehension of the the stakes that the story involve, um, it, it's just so refreshing. So you mix that with this incredible artwork from Liam Sharp, this almost Frank Frazetta uh, type style of art. It's just amazing. You know, John Bolton is another uh, artist who, who comes to mind. Dave McKean, maybe. Um, so it's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And again, based on this art, which, you know, I've always talked about Liam Sharp's art, whether it's him doing this painted fantasy science fiction-y type stuff, um, or him just doing his super detailed pencils, his art has always transcended comic art for me. It's always been, this is fine art. This is, uh, you know, art at its best, conveying uh, emotion and 
uh, a sense of power and gravitas. Uh, it's just, it's incredible artwork. Uh, so if anybody read the series he did with Grant Morrison, the green lantern and, and likes uh, or liked what his art turned into by the end of that, or the style he adopted by the end of that, uh, you're going to love this. So definitely check it out. Don't wait for the, the trade uh, jump on sooner than later. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, from Marvel, She-Hulk. It's from writer Rainbow Rowell. Luca Maresca is the artist. Rico Renzi on colors. Joe Caramani on letters. Um, you know, I, I, I talked quite a few times or mentioned quite a few times that I didn't care for the savage She-Hulk type uh, version of the character that we had in Jason Aaron's Avengers. She was very... Uh, she wasn't as intelligent as when she... Uh, it, typically, as we see Jen Walters as She-Hulk... She was um, bigger, much more masculine, and I didn't really care for it. I mean, one of the things I love about She-Hulk is how feminine she comes across um, and how she's herself, regardless of whether she's in the Jen Walters persona or the Hulk persona. There's been different artists or different writers who've explored that idea and toyed with the idea that Jen Walters is even more of herself. She, she can be more of herself. She doesn't have to hide her personality when she's in the She-Hulk um, body, I guess you'd say. As opposed to Jen Walters, where she was a little more timid, a little more submissive. So I'm glad that we've returned to that. Certainly, that's the the most well-known version of She-Hulk. And at times, she's been rendered uh, very provocatively in terms of, I don't want to say sexualized, but just a very sexy character, especially in the hands of John Byrne. I think that's where a lot of people's, um, you know, thoughts go when they think about She-Hulk and in terms of images. So what I like about this is Luca Maresca, and this goes for the Jen Bartel covers as well. She still comes across as very beautiful and very sexy, but in a little bit more of an innocent way. It's not so overt. Um but I, I really like it. I like this balance. It's like they're, they're striking a good balance between Jen as this uh, person who has always had a weird life in a way, based on the fact that she's mixing her per personal and professional lives along with the super uh, heroic acts that she does. And, you know, we see that never more uh, apparent than when she gets a job in this new volume with uh, this lawyer who somebody would say ha has been her nemesis in the past um, and tells her, hey, you're not allowed to have any clients that have anything to do with superheroes, right? Despite the fact that this this boss of hers that, that owns the law firm, Mallory Book, is dating the super adaptoid and has uh, had, you know, tons of... Um, of her career influenced by superheroes and supervillains and, and all that sort of stuff. So there's the, the, the weirdness magnet to borrow uh, a term from blue devil and, and what happened in that series uh, way back in the day, if anybody's familiar, but that that's Jen, you know, weird things just seem to happen. I mean, she's, she's friends with these superheroes. So, so of course, when they have a legal issue, this is who they're going to come to. So I like that it's a great balance that rainbow Rowell is bringing to the series um, with just how weird Jen's life is, but Jen embracing that and, and trying to be happy. So I don't know how much the tone or what uh, Marvel was going for with the, the TV show plays into this. It could have nothing to do with it. They could be very similar. I don't know. What I do know is I, I think this is a very accessible version of She-Hulk and a very accessible volume and then you add in Jack of Hearts, who's somebody who, who I really enjoy, both the visual of him and him as a character. Uh, there's a mystery there to him. Uh, he hasn't been really used a lot. And so I, I like the fact that they brought him as in as a supporting character. And his relationship with Jen, which takes a step forward in this issue, is something that really intrigues me as well. So if you're a fan of the She-Hulk series, give this a try. Uh, and let me know if it's similar in tone to the, the TV show or not. But it's definitely worth your time. The art is beautiful. The colors are great. And uh, definitely one of my favorite runs of She-Hulk in, in a long, long time. So 
Uh, up next, we have Moon Knight. We're up to issue number 16, I believe. Uh, 15. And it's written by Jed McKay. Alessandro Capuccio does the artwork. Rochelle Rosenberg on colors. Corey Petit on letters. What's interesting about this, when we had Jed McKay on, he talked specifically about how he was going to leave the dissociative ID, uh, identity disorder alone. Marvel specifically said, hey, we don't want you to mess with that. Maybe it was because of what was going on in the TV show. But for the past couple issues, he's leaned into it heavily. And you know, I've talked in the past about wanting to get away from the idea of Moon Knight being crazy. Uh, I just I don't find that to be an interesting aspect to the character. It's my least favorite thing about the character. Um and so I was a little worried when Jed uh, started bringing this up and started to explore it. And, you know, not necessarily push back on what Jed told me because, you know, maybe they did tell him that he had to leave it alone for the first year plus of the, of the series, but it is very much a part of the character. So you wouldn't expect Jed to ignore it forever. But what's interesting is the way in which Jed is interweaving Stephen Grant and Jake Lockley into the story where it feels much more like a, a conversation between Mark Spector and these two other personalities. It, it feels much more like, Hey, here's three guys that are completely separate individuals that all have the same goal. Um, you know, it's not this tropey thing where one is taking over and the others are raging against him. And, you know, we've seen that thousands of times, thousands of times, uh, particularly in, in Hulk books. So I, I like what's going on here. The fact that it's all additive, you know, McKay took his time and set up the status quo for Moon Knight in terms of the the midnight mission and wanting to help, you know, people that couldn't get help from anywhere else. This idea of a vampire assistant, this idea of a soldier sidekick, all that got established um, and and firmly established over a, a over a year of telling these stories. So again, to bring this in now, it definitely feels additive. It doesn't feel destructive. It doesn't feel disruptive the way uh, Moon Knight's DID has been in the past, where you end up having a, a a series that can only have Mark Spector, can only have Moon Knight as the main character because he can't uh, maintain any relationships because of this uh, DID that he suffers from. So, I like where this is going, um, playing down the the different aspects of of those different personalities doesn't 100% make sense because it is so tied in to the very beginnings of the character. I mean, you could make the argument that it wasn't, that they were more disguises um, as opposed to full-on separate personalities in the beginning, you know, kind of like what Batman does with Matches Malone. We could debate that, but Either way, it is part of the character from his earliest days. And I always try to think of them as like faces of the moon. The guy's name is Moon Knight, so it works on that level. Um, but again, I think Jed McKay, now that he's brought it in, he's doing a good job of of making it work uh, and not having it be destructive and disruptive, as I said. So, uh, All right, up next, we have another image book. This is from writer Patrick Kindlin. Art is by Marco Ferrari. Letters by Jim Campbell. It is called Antioch. It very much ties in with the Frontiersmen, which is a series that I fell off of. I didn't keep reading that. It, I just lost interest in it. Uh, but I kind of feel like I need to go back and read it. And certainly if you're going to read this Antioch story, you need to, to read Frontiersmen. Th this is a world where it, I wouldn't say it's post-apocalyptic, but the world is, is certainly teetering. Um, the Antioch character here is fighting against loggers and uh, uh, they're not even loggers. They're, they're, they're logging in order to have room to build a pipeline so they can bring oil through this forest. They're going to strip the forest first, cut it down and sell it and make money off that as well. So it, this whole idea of frontiersmen and Antioch and whatever, it's very much this um, commentary on in the environment and where we are in the world. Um, so, Again, Frontiersman, it didn't, it was just, it was really slow for like three issues and I, I just couldn't get into it. This is much faster paced with a lot of action with this Antioch character, as I said. So I don't know, maybe I'll go back and reread Frontiersman and then read this and get more out of it. But I would say you can kind of jump on this and get, get some context 
uh, of what's come before, but not a ton of context. Um, you would have to sort of power through. But if you've read Frontiersman, then you probably can jump on this. Um, and I will say there is uh, an essay in the back by Patrick Kylan that does uh, explain things and and help you if you haven't read the previous uh, volume of Frontiersman. But if you're curious about the the world that he's creating, uh, maybe you're uh, very concerned about the environment, uh, then yeah, this is probably the book for you. So check it out. Uh, up next from Top Cow, we have the final issue of Metal Society. This is from writer Zach Kaplan. Art is by Guillermo Balbi. Colors by Marco Lesco. Letters by Troy Petrie. Man, if I ever wanted to spoil things, uh, it would be this book, but I'm not going to. Suffice it to say, we get the final battle between uh, the humans and the robots, and it's epic. The art by Balbi is amazing. It's so uh, it's so brutal seeing this fight between uh, Rosa and Wall, and the fight certainly doesn't go the way you would expect it to in a lot of ways, but in, a, in other ways, when you sit there and think about it, it goes exactly as it probably you would expect it to, at least the way it starts, but the way it ends, the way both the fight ends and the series ends is so filled with emotion and in a way filled with hope, but also with sadness. It's a fantastic balance of all these uh, com complex ideas that Zach Kaplan has has created. And when you th think about this idea of, okay, it's a human, this, you know, Rosa Gen 3 versus Wall, this uh, construction robot that learns how to fight, uh, a little bit tropey, you know, maybe a little bit of the stereotypes here of human against robot fighting to determine, you know, who, who is the, the better species, who deserves to inherit the earth, if you will, and to have it end the way that it ends uh, it's such an interesting idea. It really takes that trope, that idea that's been used in so many different sci-fi stories before, and it completely turns it on its head. So I cannot recommend this highly enough. Now that the final issue is out, I'm sure the trade will be following soon. So pick up all the single issues, pick up the trade when it comes out. This is so much fun. Uh, Kaplan has done a really great job of presenting both sides fairly and in a compelling way, way, very interesting. I mean, you, you read the first issue and you would think, oh yeah, I'm a hundred percent on the side of the humans. I would never side with the robots. But as you read more and understand more about the robots and the way the robot world works and walls uh, situation specifically, you start to see that they're not so different from humans. They have a lot of the same concerns. And so it ends up being a very interesting examination of what it means to be human, um, what it means to have hope, what it means to build a better world. So fantastic job by Zach Kaplan. I mean, th this series is a perfect example of why he's one of my favorite writers. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, all right, let's flip back over to Marvel, The Exorcism of Johnny Blaze, written by Benjamin Percy. Brent Peoples is the artist. Brian Valenza on colors. Travis Lynam on letters. This is issue six of Ghost Rider. Wolverine has showed up. Um, and on the cover, it says Ghost Rider versus Wolverine. Enough said. I, I think it's issue six of the John of the um, Danny Ketch Ghost Rider from the 90s where Wolverine shows up. I think in the Spider Man, Todd McFarlane Spider Man series in the 90s, it was issue six where Wolverine shows up. So I guess it was just time for Wolverine to show up. But um, this has been a very horror centric series so far with Benjamin Percy examining. Uh, Johnny Storm uh, or Johnny Storm, Johnny Blaze and uh, the Ghost Rider in terms of how they're connected to the supernatural world of, of uh, Marvel, but not just the, the superhero of magic, but more into the horrific stuff, the the monsters, the demons, the scary stuff of uh, the MCU. And uh, I love that Wolverine and Ghost Rider have such a history that's commented on here by Wolverine. And uh, this is just a very interesting story. And again, leaning into the horror aspect of the character. That being said, this is a bit of a transitional issue. Um, plenty of action and uh, plenty of Wolverine, but we don't actually get that much Johnny Blaze in terms of like character work and moving the character forward. But it does kind of establish a new 
I don't want to say a new status quo because from the beginning of this series, we've seen Johnny and Ghost Rider sort of at odds with each other. And maybe that's changing a little bit with the events of this issue, which will allow Johnny to be more himself. Ghost Rider will be more recognizable as a, a, a hero that we've known in the past. Anti-hero, maybe you want to say. Um, and, and with Johnny and Ghost Rider working more closely together, or at least not actively fighting against each other, maybe they can get more done, right? In terms of fighting against these evil magic users of the MCU that are sort of pitted against Johnny uh, or have been pitted against him and, and are out there murdering people on the highways and byways and, uh, you know, whatever they're destroying them, eating them, doing whatever they, they want to do for their own evil ends. So, so it is interesting the way this has come together. Um, I don't know that Wolverine was necessary to get us to this point, but I'm okay with that. I mean, Benjamin Percy does write Wolverine, uh, the Wolverine comic, and he is a Wolverine fan. So I, I didn't mind it. And uh, it certainly, as I said, harkens back to uh, a lot of classic Marvel stories, Marvel history, uh, because uh, Logan and Johnny obviously have a long history. So uh, check it out if you're so inclined. The artwork is fantastic. Um, the color work as well. Lots of reds and oranges, as you would expect in a Ghost Rider book. And the, the fight scenes with Wolverine are, are awesome um, as he's slicing and dicing up everything. So. Uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, a book from Aftershock. It's called Last Line Number One. It's from writer Richard Dinnick. Jose Holder is the artist. Kelly Fitzpatrick on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. So all we knew about this book was that it was basically the story of this woman who uh, drives a train in the London Tube, ver you know, their version of our New York City subway system. And when somebody is pushed or jumps in front of her train and um, like the fallout of that, once you start reading the story, you realize it's way more kind of complicated than that. Um, again, I don't want to spoil, but talk about British stories, obviously MI5, MI6, secret agents, James Bond type stuff that that's possibly all there. Um, there's been plenty of other stories, uh, set in London um, that that sort of deal with kind of secret agents and whatnot. And then you have the whole Doctor Who franchise with aliens and time travel and monsters and that sort of stuff. And let me just say that Richard Dinnick is throwing all of that in here. Um, it's very fast paced. We meet Sally Hazard. We meet her brother, Jay, and uh, they're established very, very quickly. We meet a secret agent named Ed. And uh, incredibly fast paced, a ton of story crammed in here. Um, it's there's some great back matter. The world is just established in a very, very quick way. And it's sort of necessary because it is so fast paced. And this is one of those stories that's so or one of those uh, titles that's so jam packed, at least in the first issue. I imagine every issue is going to be this way. It's so jam packed with story which is one thing after another happening. The story takes on a momentum of its own, but it also makes it very hard to, to review in any sort of spoiler-free way because literally, literally every page has spoilers on it. So what I will say is the character work is interesting. Um, Dinnick hasn't necessarily given us everything of these characters, but you do get a pretty good sense of who they are, but I'm expecting more or hoping for more character work in terms of what's below the surface. Obviously, they're all reacting to this situation they've found themselves thrown into, this incredible situation. Um, you talk about storytelling of, uh, hey, what's the best way to tell a story uh, or a comic story? Well, tell a story of extraordinary events happening to ordinary people and, and how they react. So that's been a lot of what the characterization for the first issue has been. But I would like some quieter moments. I, I hope that Dinnick has found spaces in this very fast paced story to let the characters take a moment to let the story itself breathe and give us some, some more character work. So, you know, it's an aftershock title. I'm always going to give anything they do a chance. This is an intriguing start, um, but I'm not completely hooked yet, but uh, it wouldn't take much. And, and maybe part of the reason for that is the art by Jose Holder. It's not my favorite style of art. Uh, it's a little, uh, it's not quite as, 
polished or finished as I would like. Um, it's, but it is very dynamic. And because this is just a fast paced story with tons of action, it certainly captures the sort of frenetic pace uh, and just action packed feel of, of the story. So uh, definitely check it out. It's an interesting start. I'm curious what others think. Uh, okay. Up next, we have the final issue of Twig from Scotty Young. Uh, this is issue number five, the end of the first arc. It's drawn by Kyle Strom. Colors are by Jean-Francois Bellou. Letters by Nate Picos of Blambot. Ah, man, this series is so much fun. I talk all the time about getting books that you can share with your kids. This is definitely a book you can share with the youngest of kids. Makes a great bedtime story. Twig is so cute. The whole world of uh, Twig, drawn by Kyle Strom, is is wonderful. It's got this innocence to it. It's got this brightness to it with the colors. Twig himself is adorable. A lot of these other creatures that inhabit the world are very interesting to look at. The monsters aren't scary, but you can certainly recognize them as um, the bad guys. So Strom has done a, a fantastic job of of balancing that. And uh, we're told Twig will return because this does give us the end of the story, the first arc of Twig, which I really appreciated. Um, despite the fact that this has been selling like gangbusters, there could have been a, uh, or maybe because it's been selling so well, there could have been a temptation from Scotty to sort of continue it or leave the door open. But no, this is a complete story. The adventure that Twig goes on in this arc is completely resolved. I love that because it, kids need, especially younger readers, they need a proper ending. And this has a proper ending. That's not to say that Twig can't have more adventures in the future, and I'm sure he will. Um, but this is such a complete story, and it, it has so much um, heart to it, so much emotion in terms of, yeah, maybe it's a little um, – two-dimensional when it comes to ideas of good and bad these characters aren't really complex but again for a younger reader or, or even for an older reader that wants somewhat of a palate cleanser this just works so from the interesting characters that are beautifully illustrated to the great color to the overall message of of tenacity and stick-to-itiveness this idea that twig just wouldn't give up um the story is just wonderful I cannot recommend this highly enough. Uh, I expect this to win awards because it's just a great, great comic for kids. Um, so it'll probably win something in those kind of areas, but uh, definitely a lot there for older readers as well. Uh, all right. Up next from Image, we have Golden Rage. Words by Chrissy Williams. Art is by Lauren Knight. Colors are by Sophie Dodgson. Flats are by Shane Hana Chu. Uh, letters by Becca Carey. Uh, I don't know that I'm digging on this. It, it just doesn't really speak to me. I mean, it's this whole idea uh, in the future, in this particular world of Golden Rage. Once women hit menopause, they're literally discarded. They take them to this island and just dump them off. Factions have arisen there, including the Red Hats, which um, I don't know the name of the group. I think they're actually called Red Hats. But I just remember various restaurants I worked at over the years, they would come in. Uh, these older women and they would all be wearing red hats and they, it was just like this social group. Um, and so I, I'm pretty sure that's what Chrissy Williams is referencing here. Um, so there's a lot to be explored here in terms of the value of people, the worth of people, like if a woman can't procreate, she, she's worthless. Um, I don't really like that idea. And I don't think these creators do either. And that that's sort of the point. Uh, but at the same time, these women should be banding together, not fighting against each other. So there's a lot to be explored here. It's just I don't know that it's uh, an exploration, a journey that I really care to go on. It's so um, it's so bleak in a lot of ways. Um, that being said, it, technically, it's a very well put together comic. Uh, it's well paced. The dialogue is great. Uh, the art suits the style of the story very, very well. Um, I, I'm just not sure where they're where they're headed. So I'm probably in for at least one more issue because I am sort of curious. Um, I imagine it's going to get even more emotional than it has been already. Um, and it certainly is an interesting idea. And I'm, I'm sure there are some readers that this resonates with uh, or or their the relatability, the touchstone is, is 
you know, more there for them. Maybe it's just the fact that I'm a guy <laughs> and this is all older women. Um, except for one that, that's significantly younger, but who's has entered menopause early. Um, it's sort of the main, main character or POV character as she's discovering the Island. But uh, it's an interesting concept. I'll say that. And uh, again, a very well put together, technically a very um, solid comic, you know, again, the art, the visual storytelling, pacing, dialogue, scripting, everything is, is top notch. So check it out if it sounds interesting to you. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Captain America Sentinel of Liberty. We're up to issue number four. This is from writers Jackson Lansing and Colleen Kelly, Carmen Caneros on the art, Joe Caramani on letters, Nolan Woodard on colors. Man, I love this book. Um, and Lansing and Kelly are going to be on soon to talk about it. Part of what I love is how much Steve is out of the costume. That's something specifically those writers wanted to focus on. Hey, let's remember who Steve Rogers is. He's so much more than just Captain America. Um, let's get back to that relationship between him and Bucky. They've been friends for 80 years. That plays a big part in the story. Last issue, we sort of discovered, Steve discovered, and we learned along with him who was behind the uh, attack on Cap and Bucky in New York City. Um I've, I've talked before in the past how much this reminds me of Secret Empire with this shadowy organization working against Steve. So it, it's this big conspiracy. Um, it feels big. It feels epic. It goes back to the earliest days of Captain America, but it's not a retcon. They're, these guys aren't going back and changing anything. They're just adding to, and that's what I love. Uh, the Carmen Canero art is fantastic, and, but where this book really shines more than anything is the characterization of Steve Rogers. I will say that Lansing and Kelly, more than any uh, cap writer I've read in, in quite some time, really understand who Steve Rogers is in the context of the modern world. Because he certainly can come across as old-fashioned. He certainly can come across as, uh, you know, and, and I don't feel this way, but there have been times it's been explored where he could fall in with being fascist, right? I mean, that was the whole idea of Nick Spencer with what he did with Cap, with the whole Hail Hydra that caused all this uproar. But if you talk about Captain America as an extension of the United States of America and what's happening politically right now in this country with uh, the rule of law and government and, you know, is he just a stooge for the government and whatnot? It's been explored time and time again, uh, but it's no less interesting for all that. Uh, he is his own guy. You know, he doesn't he, he quit being Captain America as opposed to taking orders from the government. He is a symbol of what the ideals of America stand for rather than a symbol of America itself. And that's something to keep in mind. And uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly do keep that at the forefront here. And it works so well. Uh, and again, Carmen Canero can't say enough about how fantastic her art is. She is a superstar in the making. So uh, absolutely loving Captain America right now. Uh, all right. Up next from Marvel, we have Death to the Mutants. This is issue number two. It's from writer Kieran Gellin. Guillo Villanova does the art. Alex Gorm is on colors. Travis Lanham on letters. Uh, again, this very much focuses on the Inhumans, um, the or sorry, the Eternals, and and what their role is in this uh, in this war. There's text pieces that give us information on the hex. Um, we get a timeline of the battle against the progenitor, which is the, the celestial that used to be the headquarters of the Avengers and Avengers mountain. And they resurrected it and turned it into a God. Now it's judging humanity. We get the timeline on that. Um, so there's a lot of interesting um, events that are happening here. And, and if the regular main miniseries uh, Avengers, X-Men Eternals is sort of where all the action takes place. I, I sort of feel like this um, death to the mutants is where it's all sort of explained and more context is added. It's being narrated by somebody and, and their um, dialogue is always in these black boxes with blue lettering. But I don't think we know who that is yet. Or certainly if, if we do, I can't tell. I flipped back through the first issue trying to figure it out. Um, and I was kind of thinking maybe it's just a, a generic narrator, but in context of some of the things that that narrator says in this issue, it's clear it's somebody who's part of the story. So not exactly sure who it is, but I imagine at some point we're going to discover that and it's going to be super important and add, again, more context to what's going on. So, you know, if you're not reading all the tie-ins, 
uh, in, in the Avengers or X-Men or any of that sort of thing, and you're just reading the main series, I would recommend at least pick up this series, at least pick up Death to the Mutants, because it does add so much. It, it explains motivation. It, it recaps things that are happening in, in some of the other tie-ins. Um, and it's an interesting story. Uh, I'm very interested to go back and read this entire Death uh, to the Mutants or Axe storyline. Once it's all said and done, I hope it's collected in like, you know, a big hardcover or softcover or what have you, where everything is is in there in chronological order for how you should read it with all the tie-ins or whatever, because uh, it's a very rich story that Kieran Gellin is creating here and a very interesting one. Um, there's some big ideas that he's not um, overtly kind of shoving in the reader's face, but that are there to be explored because uh What's in the front, what comes to the forefront in this series so far is action, action, action. I mean, these Hex Eternals attacking Krakoa, uh, the X-Men and the Avengers and the Eternals going to try to stop their progenitor, uh, attacking the progenitor. There's a lot of action, a lot of action. There's plenty of political intrigue too, but a lot of action. So you, uh, that's at the, the top layer. And then just below that, you have the subtext of the political machinations of the Eternals and Druig and the, the Deviants and the X-Men themselves, who've always been somewhat persecuted as mutants. That's sort of on the second layer. And then below that, you have the idea of these big ideas. Um, what does it mean to be judged? How do we judge ourselves? We have humans, we have Eternals, we have Deviants, which is an offshoot. We have mutants. Um, is being one better than being another in terms of being judged and you know, morals and good and bad and all that. So yeah, some big ideas here, but it's, it's, it's very subtle. So uh, again, I, I think it's going to read great altogether as interesting and great as it is on a monthly basis. I think reading it all together, I'm going to get even more out of it. So uh, all right. Up next, we have another book from image. We've talked about every issue of the series as they come out. It's a town called terror. It's from, uh, writer Steve Niles, Simon Kurdansky does the art, Marshall Dillon on letters. Uh, we get the final battle here between Henry West and his father. Um, the art by Simon Kurdansky, I cannot stress enough how amazing it is. Th this fight is brutal. These guys hold n uh, nothing back, and that really shows, and it comes across in the story. That's pretty much what this issue is. It's just the fight between Henry and his father. We get a few other uh, moments or tidbits seeds planted um, but not anything I can talk about without being being spoilery but what I do find interesting is right when this battle which this this fight which the series has been leading up to the whole time is done uh, Niles makes it clear that that's not the end of the story because you sort of felt like based on what we've been focusing on that it might be the end of the story like it was all about having the the fight between Henry and his father. Uh, and once that conflict was resolved, the story would end. That's not the case. There's so much more to be explored. And that's great because so far what we've seen in uh, the town of terror um, is Frankenstein like monsters and werewolf like monsters and vampires and tons of other uh, interesting characters who I want to learn more about. So when you pair that up with um, when you pair that up with the art of, Kordansky, you have something really, really special. So uh, I do recommend it. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I can't say enough good things about it, uh, especially if you like horror, if you like action, you're going to be all in on this. So so check it out. Speaking of all in, how about All Out? We have All Out Avengers, written by Derek Landy, Greg Land, Penciler, Jay Lysine on inks, Frank Diarmada on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Been a big fan of... Derek Landy and what he's done recently uh, on his Marvel projects. They've just been so, they've just been so fun and sort of out of context uh, in terms of, Hey, you don't need to read anything that's going on in the rest of the Marvel universe to jump in and find out what Derek Landy's doing. When you read this first issue, you, we're dropped right in the middle of this fight and there's much more going on than meets the eye. And through some narration, we realize that there's somebody narrating. We don't know who it is, but clearly he's manipulating the Avengers uh, and manipulating events. So how that's going to play out, we'll have to wait and see. 
Uh, in terms of the lineup, you've got Captain Marvel, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, Blade, Spider-Woman, Black Panther, uh, and Spider-Man. So that's a great lineup. Um, what Derek Landy is doing is, is very interesting. I'm very intrigued. The art by Greg Land is really solid. The Armada colors really pop off the page. You don't need to read anything before you read this. Just dive in. Again, we're dropped in the middle of the story. It is all out action. It makes sense that it's called All Out Avengers and uh, love the relationships. It's one of the things that Landy seems to um, to really excel at is the relationships, the interplay between these characters. I think about uh, the Iron Man, Captain America book that he did recently, where he really played with um, the relationship, you know, the long, long relationship, long friendship of uh, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers. Um and poked fun at it and, and really used it as a kind of way to, to bring a rela- relatability to the characters and to the story. I expect some of that to come here in all out Avengers between all the actions. So if you're looking to jump on uh, ground floor with the new Avengers title, I do recommend this. It's a lot of fun, gorgeous art, very intriguing start. Despite the fact we were, we were kind of dropped in the deep end. Uh, I liked it. It was very interesting. So, all right, up to the last book I'm going to talk about in detail here um, from the amazing Mark Brooks cover uh, to the story inside. I loved it. It's Immortal X-Men number six, written by Kieran Gellin. Lucas Wernock is the artist, David Curiel on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. It does tie in, obviously, it's an X-Men title. It does tie into what's going on in uh, Axe Judgment Day right now. Um, Sebastian Shaw is on the cover. As I mentioned, beautifully illustrated by Mark Brooks. And this uh, obviously focuses on Sebastian Shaw and who he is. And I I love the context. I love the decisions he makes. I love his characterization in the hands of Kieran Gillen. Um, Again, even if you're reading Immortal X-Men or or reading maybe all the X-Men titles, but you're leaving the Axe event alone, you're still okay here. There's still enough context with Sebastian Shaw. And even though there are some events that tie into the bigger uh, crossover event that's going on right now, there's enough here for X-Men fans, for longtime fans of X-Men, for people who are familiar with Sebastian Shaw. There's enough new stuff here, enough interesting storytelling that you probably don't mind the act stuff and you can sort of ignore it. It, Just think of it as a way for Karen Gellin to explore Sebastian Shaw. Like, what would Sebastian do if he thinks the world's coming to an end, right? Like this progenitor is going to judge, judge every being on earth and the earth could come to an end. If it turns out that, you know, the scales tip in the balance of um, people being judged uh, as unworthy rather than worthy. So facing that, what does Sebastian Shaw do? Like you don't need to even think about that's just the impetus. You don't really need to think about that you can just enjoy the uh, the characterization of Sebastian Shaw because this is very much uh, a character study of who Sebastian Shaw is. I feel like I have a better understanding of Shaw than I ever have before uh, with what Kieran Gillen is doing here. So it's just fantastic. We're not much like Caniero is a, a superstar in the making. In, in fact, I didn't mention this when I was talking about Canero's art, but they did both just sign exclusive contracts with Marvel. So Marvel was smart to do that because we're not, uh, his art is gorgeous. Um, love the detail, love the line work, love the choices he makes in terms of storytelling. Uh, and with this being uh, a character study of Sebastian Shaw, uh, there's a lot of focus on him and he draws him beautifully, you know, wearing those period piece clothing of the 1800s and whatnot. It just, it works on so many levels. So I really did enjoy this issue. Um, it made me want to go read more Sebastian Shaw stories. So I think that that says it all right there. All right, let me give a rundown on some other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, from Aftershock Comics, we have Vineyard number two. Uh, haven't read number one. I missed that number one for, for some reason. So I haven't read number two yet. Um, so check that out if you're so inclined. We have a new number one from Ahoy Comics. It's called Highball. Uh, it's written by, sorry, I'm just pulling up the, uh, it's written by Stuart Moore. Fred Harper is the artist. 
and it's described as Battlestar Galactica meets Hitchhide, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, apparently, they play darts, they take shots. Uh, it sounds interesting. It sounds fun, like a lot of those Ahoy comics are. So uh, check it out if you're so inclined. Uh, over at Boom, Once in Future from Kieran Gillen, who we've talked about a lot in this episode, is up to number 29. From uh, Dark Horse, we have Mind Management Bootleg number three of four from Matt Kent uh, over at DC. And again, you can listen to our reviews of all the DC stuff on the DC Spotlight that came out Tuesday. There are spoilers for those, um, so just be forewarned. Uh, but Batman 127, more fail-safe goodness. Our theory about fail-safe was proven correct. Jorge Jimenez are written by Chip Zdarsky. Uh, Batman Neo Year comes to an end, number six of six from the aforementioned uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. That was a really fun series. Hoping for more from them uh, on Batman Beyond. Batman Dear Detective number one is a really interesting book. Loved it. I'm a huge fan of Lee Bermejo. What Lee has done is he's managed to take a bunch of his covers from his recent detective comics run, put them together and use them to tell a story, which is really, really interesting. It's a bit of an esoteric story. But it really, really works. I was blown away and super impressed by that. Uh, Black Adam movie coming up. We have another Black Adam. Justice Society Files one-shot. This time we're focused on Adam Smasher. Very accessible. If you don't know anything about Adam Smasher, you can pick it up and hit the ground running. It gives you a good introduction into him. And the Travis Mercer art is gorgeous. Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, number four of seven, along with Flashpoint Beyond, number five of six. Both tease some big changes, perhaps, coming uh, for the architecture of the DC universe. So if you're a big DC fan, you definitely need to be reading uh, both of those. Those are both amazing. Uh, Dark Knights of Steel, Tales from the Three Kingdoms, number one, one shot. This is exploring the world of the Dark Knights of Steel that Tom Taylor has created with three stories that take place before the current series. Uh, so if you're a fan, you'll enjoy those. Uh, Flashpoint, or I mentioned Flashpoint Beyond already. Uh, Multiversity Teen Justice, number four of six, best issue of that series so far. A uh, new champion of Shazam with incredible Doc Shainer art written by Josie Campbell is up to issue number two of four. Nubia Queen of the Amazons comes to a close with the best issue yet, uh, number four of four. Poison Ivy miniseries is up to number four of six. Uh, and the Sword of Azrael miniseries is up to number two of six. So check those out if you are so inclined. Uh, over at IDW, I want to mention Star Trek is up to issue number 400 in terms of put together all the Star Trek series that have happened so far, which publishers seem to want to do so they can have these big uh, milestone numbers. Um, but that's a $7.99 book that has stories from all different uh, eras of Star Trek. So if you're a Star Trek fan, that's probably one you want to be sure to pick up. Uh, from Image, in addition to the uh, issues I talked about, Dead Lucky number two which I'm not sure how I missed that. I think I got a preview copy of it, but for some reason I, I couldn't find it when I went to read my books. So uh, the first issue was amazing. So I can't wait to go and read the second issue. Um, so definitely check that out. Everyday Hero Machine Boy is a new graphic novel from the Comet imprint over at Skybound, which is their YA imprint. There's another episode out today where I talked to Tri Vong and uh, Irma Canevola. I hope I'm saying her last name right uh, about that book. It, it was very fun. It's an, another one, much like Twig. It's great for all ages. You can share it with your kids. Definitely check that out. Go listen to the interview. Uh, I was really impressed with impressed with that. And speaking of Tri, he also does the Lego Ninjago uh, Garmadon series, which is up to issue number four or five. That issue is also out from Image today. And the final issue of Mirka Andolfo's Sweet Paprika, number 12 of 12, also comes out. So check that out if you're so inclined. Uh, and then Walking Dead Deluxe is up to issue number 46. For Marvel, in addition to the books I talked about, we have Black Panther, number nine. We have, uh, let's see, New Fantastic Four, number four of five. And Star Wars is up to issue number 27. And X-Men and Moon Girl crossover. Uh, issue number one is also out today. So tons of great Marvel books to check out if you're a big Marvel fan. And I think that is it. Um, so, okay, and apologies that this was a little late trying to get back on schedule. Work. My day job has just been insane this entire year, but uh, glad I could get out, get this out 
on Wednesday for you, even if it wasn't super early in the day. But we appreciate the support as always. Hope you guys have a great new comic day. Uh, Thanks for listening as always. And we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.